Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Do we use the term genocide? Do we use the term terrorist? Do we use the term colonizer? Do we use the term apartheid? Was it anti-Semitic or just anti-Zionist? Were they pro-Hamas or just pro-Palestine? Ceasefire, what does that mean? Is that just about Israel ceasing fire or does it apply to Hamas as well? What does from the river to the sea really mean? And that's what we do now. We fight about these words and phrases. We fight about what they actually mean and who gets to define them and who they apply to. We haven't been discussing these semantic distinctions, we've been fighting over them because different people say they mean different things and everybody is fighting for the power for their definition to be the one that wins. And that has become a primary focus inside newsrooms because we know that it's a primary focus outside of newsrooms, in the public, on the streets, on social media. This is the story. This is the most divisive, emotionally charged story that there is. It's more divisive, it seems, than abortion, than gun control, than Ukraine, than trans rights. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. This is how we went out of 2023, fighting about this stuff. But is that really anything new? We asked Esther Enkin because she's a person who would know. 
She's been a journalist for 40 years. She's covered the Middle East. She's also been a member of the Canadian Association of Journalists Ethics Committee. But most notably, she was the CBC's ombudsman, where her job was to respond to complaints sent in by the public. So we asked her if this news story, Israel-Palestine, has it always been the one that really rips people apart? Yes, it has always been. I can remember both intifadas, uh, Sabra Shatila, the Lebanon War. I can remember the fax machine burning up because there were campaigns from both sides, right, around coverage, probably in 2000 or maybe a little earlier in some smaller event. It plays out in our newsrooms much more now because for good reasons, our newsrooms are more diverse. But I think I can't, I personally cannot make sense of the hatred that is being expressed in the public sphere this time. I, I, I honestly... It saddens me more than shocks me, but it's always been there, always been there. It's one of those areas where people feel really strongly the extraordinary impact of social media and the capacity for people to never hear or or read anything that they don't agree with and to not have the the knowledge to know what is just sheer bullshit. <laughs> like just not true. And it just builds on itself and it builds on itself. And, and, and here we are. Here we are. Getting more angry complaints from the public on this than on any other issue. The National News Media Council says the complaints to newsrooms have been up dramatically since October 7th. And about 60% of all complaints are about Middle East coverage. People are scrutinizing every broadcast, every news article, every podcast for evidence of newsroom bias. Pro-Israel bias, pro-Palestine bias. People seem certain that every media organization receives marching orders to slant our coverage in one direction or the other. I think there's this assumption that there's this kind of politburo, you know, that there are diktats of how things should be done and it's all very thought out and very deliberate, which of course, you know, 90% of the times when people got things wrong or, or made mistakes, it's almost never deliberate. But there's somehow this idea that there's this almost conspiracy of thought that, that only allows for one point of view. The truth is that we argue with each other about this stuff just as vigorously as you might be arguing with your friends and family about it. But these arguments of ours are rarely seen or heard. All you get to look at are the results, the things that we end up publishing. But if you actually want to understand the coverage, you need to understand how it is getting made. And you need to understand the tremendous pressures that journalists are facing as they make it. Here at Canada Land, our beat is limited to the Canadian impacts of the war on our domestic media and domestic politics. And even with that narrow focus, covering this has been tremendously difficult. And while we've been fighting our own internal battles, we have been investigating stories that have been leaking out of just about every other newsroom in the country. And based on what we've been hearing, this is breaking just about everybody. Tensions are high. Emotions are very fragile, and resources are at record lows. And with the stories that we're hearing, it really does make us wonder if Canadian media, given the shape that it's in right now, 
can even sustain covering a story like this. Well, in the, in the weeks and months ahead, we are going to bring you those stories from across the Canadian media, and we will provide transparency about what's been happening here. And I fully expect all of that to be very fraught. But today, for our first show of this new year, we're going to breathe for a minute and try to give you some idea of just what it has been like for journalists to work under these conditions, with all eyes suddenly on them and with the weight of the world on their shoulders. Brent Jolly is the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, and you're going to hear from him later about what he's hearing from reporters across this country. But first, Dave Seglins. Dave is a CBC journalist who spent 25 years as a frontline reporter and investigative journalist. After experiencing work-related PTSD, he's purposed himself as a champion of well-being in the newsroom. He is somebody who is relied upon by journalists who are having trouble at the CBC and elsewhere. And he says that burnout, stress, and trauma among his colleagues has never been higher. In a moment, he sits down with our editor-in-chief and Dave's former boss, Karen Puglese, to talk about exactly what journalists in Canada have been going through. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jack Denham, Catherine de Cesare, Samson Graham, Mary Green, Hugo Vacher, Keitha Mercer, William Meloche, and Chris. Hello, I'm Chris from Tokyo. Please continue your tenacious muckraking because it actually makes us a better country in the long run. Thank you, Jesse. So I'm Dave Seglins. I am a journalist and well-being champion uh, based at CBC. Uh, I'm also a, a fellow of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. So right now, I, I don't want to believe that it's just me or, you know, we've had some tensions inside Candleland, but I'm seeing like a lot of tensions, hearing about a lot of things inside newsrooms where the temperature seems really turned up since the war. Um, what are you hearing? Well, seems like. No, seems I think the temperature is. This, let, let's face it, this is horrific. What's happening, I, I, have we seen this in our lifetime? What's happening in newsrooms is we're all trying to make sense of it. And I would argue that we are, <laughs> we're, we're stressed out. But I think, I think that this war is uh, particularly divisive and it's particularly close to home for a lot of people. And that's making it all the more difficult. I'm not close to this, and I'm waking up sometimes with stomach aches. Um, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Why are reporters so stressed out? So my training, one of the first things I do is I, I ask people in the room, and we don't, generally don't get asked as frontline journalists, you know, gee, what are the stressors in your job? Because mm -hmm. it's taken for granted that it's a stress-filled kind of industry. And people jump to like deadlines or, you know, we work off hours or we have big workloads or, or job insecurity. These are all baseline stressors that are normal within the industry. What is not normal right now is the amount of visual imagery mm -hmm. and stories about civilians, children being killed 
uh, the volume of this is just profound. And it's happening in a context when we have so much personal connection. Many people have personal connections Mm -hmm. that the lenses they bring to interpreting this, there's not agreement. I mean, look, this war and how to describe it, how to talk about it uh, is dividing – Everybody around the world is dividing political parties. It's dividing um, neighbors and and friendships, you know, based on what your connection is to this conflict. So no doubt we're going to have the same kinds of conflicts in a newsroom, which is a microcosm of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, for a lot of people, I mean, this is trauma, right? This is real visual and vicarious trauma, whether you have relatives in Israel or the Gaza Strip or the occupied territories, the whatever your connection is, this is really difficult. And I think one of the challenges for so many people in the media is that we have personal thoughts and feelings about this. And yet we are trying very hard to do our jobs to be the impartial, fair and balanced observers and present that story and that account of what's happening in this war. And we can't agree. Right. So you said a lot there and I want to unpack some things like just one by one. So the first thing was looking at the images. I think a lot of people have probably been, you know, watching things on on CBC or on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera's had almost constant coverage because they had boots on the ground mm-hmm. in Gaza. But when you're actually working in the newsroom, um, you're not living with things just once. I remember, you know, like my ops guy used to remind me when we're working on things traumatic that the editors watch the videos over and over again because mm-hmm. they're rewinding and they're picking clips and they're they're being told, go look for this clip of this child or go look for the clip of this death or this incident. They're editing the stories, they're rewinding or like scrolling back and hearing seeing anything, everything many times. What other things are particular about, you know, connecting with that material right now that journalists are doing that like just um, only happen in a newsroom, like the way that we're connecting to it. So since October 7th and the Hamas attacks, I've been called on to do a number of training sessions and kind of debrief sessions. Um, and not just at CBC, I do training elsewhere, but for closed captioners, okay? These are people who work at City TV who do nothing but sit in a room, watch the images and describe And as you say, over and over again, repetitively describe and put into captioning what is happening on the screens. Now, that sets up a perfect storm. You know, you're isolated. You're watching violence. You are describing it over and over and over again. Now, put on a hat that says, I have a close personal connection to that. I have family or neighbors or relatives that are somehow directly affected. Others that I've spoken to are associate directors, the people who work in the studios and the control rooms. I can also think are media librarians. You don't usually think of media librarians as being, you know, in the front line. But in this conflict, you know, please give me all the images over the last 48 hours about this particular part of the conflict. Who gets to do that work? People are sitting there at screens, scrolling through, scrolling through, image after image after image. And what we know about trauma, like our understanding of the science and and the neuroscience of trauma has changed significantly in the last decade. For a long time, thanks to the military, we've studied, you know, what happens directly to people and we came up with diagnoses for things like PTSD and trauma-related anxiety and depression. In 2013 – 
the American Psychiatric Association updated its diagnostic statistical manual and said, look, vicarious trauma, this is professions that work with repeated exposure to graphic material and repeated exposure to aversive details. So it's not just visuals. It can also be people working in radio, mm-hmm. okay, who are listening to right. and, and reimagining in their brains the kind of acts of war that are happening in the victims. This is a professional risk. And we now know that journalists and media workers, and not just the frontline journalists, are vulnerable, and particularly vulnerable because they're stuck in rooms. They, they're, they're on shifts where they can't get up to go to the bathroom because you're on live television for two hours of a stretch. And all that's rolling is this constant barrage of destruction, death, and human suffering. So vicarious trauma puts media workers in the front lines and makes them particularly vulnerable to things like PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And we know that the levels of trauma exposure within our industry are extremely high. So there was um, another war. There was the Ukraine war earlier this year. This feels very different. It does. First off, the the precipitating event for this most recent war mm-hmm. was horrific for Israel and people uh, of the Jewish faith who have historical trauma from the Holocaust. This is the single largest targeted attack on Jewish and or Israeli citizens. This is incredibly triggering. What makes this war different than, say, Ukraine, I think, is that we don't have consensus. We are divided as a society because there are loyalties on each side, and I actually don't think that there are two sides in this. I think there's a multiplicity of sides. Just because you're Israeli or just because you're Jewish or just because you're Palestinian doesn't mean you view all of the actions of all of the actors uniformly. And it, so It felt like there was maybe a, a clearer bad guy in the Russian-Ukraine war. Is that fair to say? I think so. There was general consensus that Putin's the bad guy and Russia's the bad actor. We were more decided. There was consensus. Mm -hmm. So this division between us, this interpersonal lack of agreement is challenging. But then also I want to step up to one one other idea. Uh, It's not just about the vicarious trauma and how horrible it is to look at or listen to this. But there's this concept of moral injury. Yeah. And I know Canada Land previously has spoken to Dr. Anthony Feinstein, who is a world groundbreaking clinical psychiatrist and academic psychiatrist who has been working in this area. Moral injury for journalists is when something goes against your moral compass, Mm -hmm. okay? If your news organization is reporting out and the final edited product is presenting the news in a manner that that you disagree with or you think is missing an entire portion, that is so upsetting uh, and, and offensive to journalists. And conversely... There's a sense of betrayal yeah. that if my news organization, this thing that I'm working for, that I'm putting myself through, all of these stressors we talked about, the deadlines, the long hours, the, all of this, watching this horrible imagery, and the way we are behaving or the message that we are putting out there is somehow against my moral code, I'm feeling like, oh, why am I doing this? And so this idea is another sort of level of risk for journalists in this highly emotional and contested time. There were also journalists killed in Ukraine, but nowhere to the degree to what we're seeing currently in the Middle East. The Committee to Protect Journalists, as of mid-December, is investigating 63 journalists and media workers. And so for us here, sitting there watching it, going, wow, 
this is our industry that where we used to walk around. I mean, I know this is a an old school idea, but the press jacket provided some level of impunity or immunity or you know respect. Not happening in this conflict. Not sure it was happening in Ukraine per se, but the toll on journalists physically over there is striking for those of us who are here. I think we're hearing a lot of the same things, and this could be any newsroom, any newsroom in Canada right now. There's a reporter that wants to use the word genocide, and they're being told they can't use the word genocide because it's not in the policy, because there is not a legal determination that a genocide has occurred yet. You have to say conflict. There's a lot of dispute over saying war on Hamas versus war on Palestine. I've talked to columnists who say they're terrified to put a comma in the wrong spot. And so on one hand, there is are decisions being made for journalists that they don't agree with going out on the air that are causing the moral injury. People are walking off the job or being fired because they're speaking up against it. There's fighting going on in newsrooms. There's also the thing that they're terrified of the public. So I just want to know, how bad is it in newsrooms right now? Look, there is division. There is disagreement. I know it's true at CBC. Uh, you know, I, I can't really remember a time in the history of news coverage where there's been such a polarizing kind of world conflict like this. There's no single narrative in this that fits everybody, you know, and, and so that's difficult. But this whole idea of getting it right, this is another stressor for journalists, right? We do want to get it right. How equipped are we? How equipped are you to describe, you know, this world conflict? I'm, I'm almost frightened of this conversation because I don't want to. I don't want to be perceived as being on one side or the I other. I am terrified every time I talk about it that yeah. I am going to use a word that is loaded that I don't realize is loaded because I don't have the context. I am terrified every time. And I think about the newer generations of journalists and younger journalists who don't have a history, haven't seen a conflict in the Middle East like this, you know, probably in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. They're now writing news copy to put out hourly bulletins. How equipped are they to understand the placement of that comma? Uh, it's tricky and it's important that we get it right and 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 it it speaks to the responsibility we have. I just want to go to a contextual place and I think there's two unique kind of contexts that are also at play here. One I'm going to call the Gen Z factor. And I'm not sure if it's all Gen Z. I think it's millennials. And I think to some extent, even Gen Xers like myself have been affected because I was really raised in a plain vanilla, you don't express anything, you're a reporter, you know, both sideism kind of mm -hmm. culture of news. And the generations coming up behind me have pushed those boundaries and then pushed them even further. And so now there's an idea amongst uh, many of the, the students that I teach that they want to be able to express themselves and kind of to hell with the rules. So how much is that a factor in newsrooms that you've got this new generation that just want to say what they want to say? I don't even hang it on a generation. I think mm. certainly there is a new evolving generation that has grown up with social media and, and a personal microphone in, in social media accounts where expression is just part of the lived experience. And squaring that with the old school culture of we don't have opinions, we're going to pretend to be objective. Yeah, the view don't, from nowhere. Don't, don't like that word uh, or don't like that idea that we can be objective. I think, yeah, of course, it's a struggle. 
And I think that the tenets of journalism, as we've known them, are really being tested. It, but it also feels like people living their trauma out on social media in yeah. some ways. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I've seen it oh in my, my own personal feeds, right? Where I'm like, wow, you are really, I'm, you know, like the discourse has changed and people who are deeply affected emotionally are really reflecting that. But journalists don't traditionally have that luxury. It's not just Gen Z and it's not just because of social media. Let's talk about the lived experience of racialized employees. Mm-hmm. Okay, Post-George Floyd, there was a groundswell of yeah. not just black, but indigenous and and, In and journalists of color. Very indigenous, yeah. yeah. And where people said, you know what? I have a lived experience and I'm tired of pretending I don't, even though I'm a journalist. And so we're still negotiating that. We're trying to figure that out. How how can you be a public person? How can you how can your identity be who you are? how you express in social media while also being a journalist for a news organization that wants to preserve some of that impartiality or 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 sort of neutrality if i can put it that way yeah and i think that's where i kind of feel it like coming up from like when i say gen z i'm not really like it's not casting aspersions on them but i think they very much uh trickled up into the other generations with these expectations and change the way that I think about things. And then the other context that I just wanted to bring to it is that we were already living in a very polarized society. And part of this is, you know, the rise of populism. And part of it is the weird social media that we've used to replace conversations. But they aren't like conversations because the algorithms reward the nastiest things that you say and the hottest emotions and put them up to the front of your feed. And so we have that going on at the same time that we're in this. And not only that kind of disruption, uh, if I can put it that way, but also there is a growing public antipathy, scrutiny, and questioning of the media, all the way to the outright distrust and hate and the media is horrible and all of this sort of stuff. And a lot of disinformation out there that makes it all very confusing on what you trust. Yeah. So for those journalists who are trying to report on the basics of what's happening in this incredibly contested conflict with a very long contested history, this is a soup of way too many stressors and ingredients. It's difficult and there is no kindness for mistakes right now because everything is just so emotional for everybody. Well, I think you put your finger on it. Kindness. I think we have to recognize the humanity in this situation. I've struggled. I I thought coming here today, how am I going to talk about this conflict? I'll tell you the thing that, you know, without taking sides, Mm -hmm. it's the empathy for the loss of human life. And acknowledging that we are all deeply affected by that to whatever degree. And if it's really close, it's really raw. So this is a lot. It is a lot. So, so, so what, do we, what do we do? Is there, is there like a, a handbook for journalists? Like where do we go for help? <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a solution for, for all of this. I do think we have to remember our humanity in this. We have to remember to be kind. Take a breath. That's not going to fix the events in the Middle East, but let's try to ground ourselves. Let's try to appreciate that we're all going through these stressors and know that this too shall pass. I mean, 
it, it sounds a little hokey, but but we have to keep a sense of history. We have to keep a sense of future that it won't always be like this. But we are really in an unprecedented time uh, in this industry and in the world. No, thanks, Dave. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad we had this conversation. I'm absolutely terrified to see what my ex-account feedback looks like after it airs. You're not alone. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That again was Dave Seglins of the CBC. Next, Karen sits down with Brent Jolly, who is the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. It's a lofty title, and it means that he's got a lot of responsibility to thousands of journalists across the country. But one thing to keep in mind is that the CAJ is run by volunteers. Brent isn't paid anything. He has a day job working as the managing director for the National News Media Council of Canada. He's often the guy who journalists call when they need help. And when a lot of them call at once, well, that can be a lot for a volunteer to handle. So, Brett, how's your mental health these days? Is that a is that a question I can answer on the in in without breaking confidence? It, it, no, I, I mean like this is a serious question because I think you are about to burn out. Well, that's one theory uh, that has been shared to me by several people. You know, I think we're seeing an unprecedented time right now in our industry: turmoil, chaos, all the things happening all at once. O outside of this interview, we are friends. 
we are. We sit on a lot of boards together, and one of them is the Canadian Association of Journalists. We do a lot of public interest advocacy around things that have an impact on press freedom. You know, since October 7th, it's been difficult. I'm not going to lie. It's been difficult for me. I've had to look inward and reflect on what I believe and what I think um, and what I don't know and what I'm not familiar with and sort of catch myself up in some regards because there's a lot of, you know, there's decades of vested interests, of facts, of interpretations, of history um, that, frankly, I'm I'm not an expert in. Um, and yeah. so let me just say that very uh, Have candidly. you ever covered the Middle East? Have you I ever, have not. Yeah. No, I'm a Canadian. I've lived in Canada. I know where my specialty is. Now, look, what's going on in Gaza right now Um, after October 7th, there are no words. There really are no words. Tragic. Every day is worse than the previous. I don't know how, I think people are having, not just journalists, I'm saying having a hard time grappling with the continued pictures of trauma and desperation and depravity, and yet also trying to reflect on the idea that you know, morally, every life has value. The CAJ has spoken up about this. We typically don't get involved in international issues. Mm-hmm. But what I can do, because that's what I focus on, is what I can control or what I can contribute. And what I can do is I can listen to people. A lot of people are doing not very well right now. They're unwell. There's a lot going on. There's crises and calamity in our in our industry. And uh, let, let's talk about that sure. a little bit. What else has been coming at you? Journalists live and breathe their industry. You know, uh, going to a, a pub night with journalists is probably the most fun thing for a journalist and probably the worst thing for anybody's significant other. <laughs> yeah. Because all journalists are going to talk about is gossip and what's going on within, you know, their own shops and what's happening, how this is, you know, unfolding. But what I'm hearing are frequent discussions around, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure this is the right career for me. This isn't what I thought I was getting into. You know, again, it's kind of that idea of who you are versus what you do, if I can boil it down to that. So are you saying that people are getting into that now and questioning whether or not they should be journalists because... I think there is some of that for sure. I mean, I think there's a line about, well, when do I stop being a journalist and start being a citizen? You know, like I think this sort of takes the frame of like, should journalists vote in elections and sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, spinning it with a with a new sort of context? You know, should you should you sign a letter, an open letter calling for, I don't know, a ceasefire in in Gaza or um, that? I don't know, that you want to participate in a protest. Those are two very important things because typically in any journalistic policy, they will tell you you cannot sign a petition on an issue that you cover. You cannot participate in a protest and then cover the issue. I mean, you might be able to cover something else, but it generally rules you out. And we have seen conflicts in newsrooms over this. We've seen people get dismissed because they've done this. And they come to you and what? Like you're not, yeah, you're not a you're not a union. I'm not so a union rep. Does the CAJ have any role that it can take in this? I can listen. I think part of under finding solutions sometimes is listening to people and allowing them to come to their own conclusions about what they need to do. I think what I can be is, in some ways, 
an, a triager, if you will, to say, okay, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you spoken to your union rep? Have you talked to other people in the newsroom? And I think that's really important because I think what we're seeing right now, just looking online and, and the, the narrative that is taking place online about, you know, one side or the other is, is toxic. And I don't think people are actually listening to each other as much as reaffirming their position. So is there anything else that people are coming to where you feel like your hands are tied or you're feeling the pressure to do something but don't really have the authority or position to do it? Well, I mean, it's also a question of resources, too. I mean, people being targeted by a hate group or some advocacy organization that espouses a very particular view of this war. And ultimately, to me, that's a press freedom issue. And so that's how, at the end of the day, I come to the conclusion that I do need to be involved and I want to be involved. It's just at the scale, sometimes it can become slightly untenable. Yeah, I I think also a lot of journalists are really concerned about, like, is their newsroom balanced? And they're trying to have those conversations inside the newsroom. And uh, they're coming and complaining to you. What I do in my day job is hearing from a lot of people who don't understand how journalism works. And that's a real problem from a social perspective, but also from you know, the point of having a democratic society where, you know, the media is supposed to be, you know, the watchdog of power and, and holding people to account. Uh, if people are questioning or looking to undermine, you know, what, what the media does at a very foundational perspective, I'm not saying I agree with this column or this person's viewpoint, I'm saying at a, at a big systemic level, that is something that I don't know if we're ready to to handle right now. Where we've changed over the last, I don't know how many years, but, you know, we've become more accountable, not as institutions, because, you know, institutions have been, you know, tattered and torn, but we're accountable ultimately to ourselves because, you know, journalism and, and journalists have been, you know, championed as change agents, you know, when you look in different in contexts in different countries, you know, journalism is speaking truth to power. And if you're not doing that, you know, the idea is that you're you're failing at your job when sometimes there's a much bigger machine. And, and I think part of the team, you know, people don't play on teams so much anymore. It's more, you know, individuals. And, and I think that that's something that we're really perhaps missing. I've heard you say that you've been doing a lot of listening and it seems that, that that's the thing that you can do right now. But I'm wondering, where do you go when you need somebody to listen to you, Brent? Uh, I cry myself to sleep. I have. <laughs> I hope you're kidding. I am kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, everybody. I have family. My family is very important to me. I have friends that I can talk to. This is just what happens in newsrooms, maybe, that they just go through these intense places, are intensely criticized, and it's a really hard cycle. And maybe you just have to buckle and get through it however you can. I think one of the things that we, and I say this, pan industry-wide, not just the CAJ or any one particular news outlet, is showing a better duty of care to each other. That's your Canada land. Happy New Year, by the way. Listen, if you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for our journalism. 
When you decide to actually pay for journalism, we want you to feel really good about it, so we shower you with neat stuff. You get premium access to all of our shows, ad-free. We give you early releases and bonus content, things that nobody else hears. You will get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But, you know, the reason why people become supporters is to become a part of the solution to Canada's widening journalism crisis. Your support allows us to offer our work for free to everybody else. Come join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. Our website, canadaland.com, is where you can sign up for our newsletter. Go do that right now. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.